and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. And good morning, Bent Tree. Uh, yeah, as, as Jeff said, my name is Josh Green. I am, I guess, the lead pastor over at Calvary Severance. And um, uh, actually, I think Paul is about to finish up preaching over there this morning. And uh, I'll, I'll tell everybody, I am Paul's uh, much, much younger, much, much better looking uh, brother. Uh, no, we get it all the time that, man, I love this, this, I love this guy. Um, we love you guys. Bent Tree is a part of who we are as well. Um, so very like-minded. We love our communities. We love Jesus. Um, and we love the gospel. And we're all about doing that. So, Thanks for allowing me to be here this morning. It's been, been great being here so far. Hey, if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 towards the end. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open that or maybe your device or whatever. Open that up to Acts chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 54 here in just a minute as they're scrolling back. That's fine. You get it. Uh, everybody got that, right? <laughs> we can pray and we can go, right? All right. Hey, um, just a little bit about myself. I'm just, uh, I told the first service that I'm just an old hickory nut from East Texas. Um, and I, I, early in my, my uh, childhood, um, my parents separated, got divorced, and I grew up with my dad for the most part. And my dad was a single parent. And I tell everybody, we weren't poor, we were po because we couldn't afford the OR. I mean, deep East Texas. And one of the staple uh, foods in my household our household at the time was my dad and my two sisters and myself were uh, hot dogs, like the wieners. And we had that was the meat that we had. And I'm not talking good ones. I'm not talking ballpark or even Oscar Mayer or anything. I'm talking like bar S, like the, the cheapest that you can get. And, and that we ate that almost um, every meal. And my dad got very, very creative and how he prepared these things. We had uh, mac and cheese and hot dogs. That was a, a specialty. We had beanie weenies. One of the things he did on Sundays, we called city quail. He called city quail. I called it gross. But he would take and he would cut a hot dog lengthwise and put a piece of American cheese in it. And then uh, if we could afford it, he'd wrap it in bacon and we put it in the oven. We called that city quail. Crazy. <laughs> Didn't taste nothing like quail. Well, he came home one evening. He goes, hey, I've got a surprise for you guys. Uh, I got something different for dinner. I'm thinking, great, something other than a hot dog. No, it was not. It was something new with the hot dogs. He pulled out of, the, out of this sack two cans. I remember it. Two cans, not jars, cans of sauerkraut. And, and now, some of you guys probably love sauerkraut. I don't because of this. Um, you may make great sauerkraut. I'm sorry, I'm not going to eat it. Well, I'm going, I'd never heard of sauerkraut. I didn't know what this was. I, was. I was young, probably six or seven years old. He dumps these two cans in a pot and he heats it up. It smells horrible, horrible. It's rotten cabbage. It's horrible. And then he, he cuts these hot dogs up and puts in there. And then he, he gets a plate and puts a heaping pile of this stuff on a plate and sets it in front of me. And I look at it and go, I'm not eating that. He says, son, this is what we have for dinner you need to eat that. This is what we have. <clears throat> Dad, I'm not eating that. It smells horrible. I'm not eating that. I was standing my ground. And he goes, son, if you don't eat this, you don't get supper because this is what we have. He goes, I want you to at least try it. I said, okay, I'll try it, but I'm not eating that. So I took a, a fork with just a little bit on it and, and tried to choke it down. Could not do it. M- most horrific stuff I've ever put in my mouth awful, awful. I spit it out. I said, dad, I'm not eating it. He goes, well, if you don't eat this, you don't get dinner. Fine. I am not eating that. And to this day, people say, oh, I make great sauerkraut. And we have, this place has great sauerkraut. Okay. I'm not eating it. I, I stand my ground. I don't eat sauerkraut. And I tell you this story because I want you to think about what are the things that you take a stand for? That you, I mean, just stand your ground and going, I'm not doing that or I'm going to do this. Alexander Hamilton said, said this, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Some of you may know that from the Aaron Tippin song with the same title, right? But it's interesting, one of the lines in that song is, is this, what you do today, you'll have to sleep with tonight. And I want you to think about something, and I, 
the things that you take a stand for. And how do you go about that? The stuff that you just stand your ground on. Why do you stand your ground on those things? And how do you do that? Here's, here's what I've seen typically. In all, if it's of most people, but even in see it in, in Christian cultures. We do one, one of two things. We either take a hard stand on things that really don't matter. That, that, as we would say, my redneck self, don't matter, matter up to a hill of beans, right? They don't matter. But yet we will stand so firm on this as like, this is the hill that I will die on, and it means absolutely nothing in all of eternity. What are those things? Or, or we do this. We're just indifferent. We don't stand for anything. We don't, especially on the things that matter, we don't take a stand on them. We just say, well, to each his own. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what God calls us to do? No. No, it's not. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or we think about, Paul even goes on, he says this in Galatians 5.1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What are the things that you stand firm on? And is it worth it? Is it something you should stand firm on? And how do you go about that? Because here's what we see is the gospel, the gospel is transformative. When we embrace the gospel, when, when, when God saves us, it, it should completely change how we live and operate. And what it is is a call to stand firm of the things of God, not the things of the world. When we trust in Jesus, he changes everything about us and go these are the things that matter which is the gospel and we're to stand firm on those things even even when the world is saying don't stand firm for those things stand firm for this junk because the world is is constantly trying to convince us to stand firm on things that don't matter and not the things that do This is what we're to do, church. This is it. This is how we are to stand firm. We're to stand firm, not as the world does, but we're to stand firm as Christ does. And this is what we see in our text today. Now, you're probably looking at this and going, well, this is the stoning of Stephen. What what in the world? What is this? We're kind of picking up at the end of the story, so I kind of want want to tell you what's going on prior to this. Prior to this event that we're going to read about in just a moment. You guys know Luke wrote uh, the Acts. It's like volume two of Luke's gospel. And what we see is, is Christ was crucified, resurrected. He spent about 40 days uh, with these believers. And then he ascended. This is where Acts picks up. The ascension of Jesus. And what we see is the, the, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. It, it, the, these tongues of fire are on these believers. Peter preaches this sermon. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. They're putting their faith in Jesus. God is saving people. Greatest revival that has ever happened. People are coming there. And here's the thing. There are men that are standing firm with the gospel. Standing up in Solomon's portico. They're preaching the gospel in the synagogues. They're preaching the gospel. Now, be mindful Just prior to this, a little over a month prior to this, they murdered Jesus. The same people murdered Jesus, and then they're telling these new believers, quit talking about Jesus. Don't say those things. You've got to stop. And what we see here are men standing firmly on the gospel and go, I hear what you're saying, but no, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. They're standing firm on the gospel, and one of these guys is Stephen. Stephen, and and most theologians would argue that he's one of the first deacons of the church. He's a man committed to Christ's church, and 
and the growth of it through the truth of the gospel. Now, a lot is not known about Stephen other than what we really read here, but, but here is enough. This is what we need to know about Stephen. So we need to know about this guy, that he loved the Lord, he loved Christ's church, and he stand boldly, stood boldly on the gospel. It's an important thing. I love what Acts 6.8 says, that he was a man full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He had come to faith in his Savior Jesus and was forever changed. Forever changed. Christ had an impact on his life. And it had changed him and, and given him this great purpose in life and that was to make much of the Lord. And what he knew and he believed about Jesus made him unshakable in his faith. Unshakable. When I read this here, I think, oh God, make me like Stephen. Oh God, make me unshakable in my faith. Oh God, just fill me like like you've done Stephen that I, even in the face of, of opposition and persecution, whatever it may come, that I would stand firm on the truth of the gospel. You know, would do just as Stephen did and proclaim it. That's what we see here. So Stephen, God, God had changed Stephen so much so that, that he boldly stood in front of these religious leaders and he pleaded for them to embrace the truth that he knew and is what we see here today. And it cost him his life in a very brutal way. However, what we see here is that Stephen gained a great reward. He got a standing ovation from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So beautiful here. Here's what I want us to see in this. In the life and death of Stephen is that the truth of the gospel is life transforming. And it calls us to confidently take a stand for the things of God, but do it in a way that is contrary to the world. You guys got your Bibles open? I got one person. We'll wait on the rest of you. Acts chapter 7, start with verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. These are religious leaders. Remember, Stephen just preached the gospel to him. This all of, of chapter 7 is Stephen preaching the gospel. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had breathed, when he had, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the generations, uh, regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for just an opportunity to worship. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, my prayer, my prayer this morning for all of us, God, is that you would open our eyes to see the glory of your name in a new way. God, I pray that you and you alone, the only one that could do this, is to plant our feet firmly on the truth of the gospel. God, my prayer is that you would make us fearless with the gospel. God, help us, give us peace in the gospel. In a world that is without peace. And Father, for those that are here this morning, more than likely that that are not at peace with you. Father, I pray that they would hear the truth of the gospel this morning. And that you would call them unto yourself. That you would save. And that you would plant their feet firmly on the gospel. God, make us unshakable. Sanctify us. Consecrate us. Set us apart, Father, for the glory of your name. 
and the good of ourselves and others, Father. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Here's what I want to do this morning. And we're going to look at just a few contrasts between Stephen and these religious leaders. I want to look at a contrast and then you're probably going to go, well, this sounds really good, Josh, but what do we do with that? Well, I want to wind up our time this morning with just taking this and going, what do we do with this, what we've heard today? So let's start by looking at a few contrasts. And here's what we see. We see a big contrast here in the way that these religious leaders, Saul included, who were, who were not followers of Jesus, and the way Stephen stood and responded. And I think we can learn a lot from what we see here about how we are to stand firm in our faith and live out the gospel in our everyday life. Here's the first thing I want us to see here. The religious leaders, they were full of rage, but Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. The religious leaders, they were full of rage, but Stephen, just the opposite, was full of the Holy Spirit. Our text says that these religious leaders, they were full of rage, so much so that they ground their teeth. You ever been so mad and angry that you just ground your teeth? Anybody? About four of us, okay. The rest of you, um, it's coming. Maybe, maybe you're on your way here this morning and the guy cut you off in front of you. Or maybe he took your parking spot, right? And you ground your teeth, right? Maybe you're not, maybe not, I hope not. But you think about, it, you ever, just that angry, just rage in us. This is what these religious leaders were. And they were angry at Stephen. They were resistant and callous to the truth. And this was, here's the thing. This was more than likely the third time that these guys had heard the gospel. And all he's doing is sharing truth with them. He's just sharing truth with them. He's saying, look, Christ is the king. You need to submit to his authority. Trust in him. He can save your souls. And these religious leaders are going, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear that anymore. Just what, P, what Stephen is telling them. They hated him for it. So much so that they're grinding their teeth. This, here's the thing, church. We have to understand this. We're going to talk about this more in just a minute. But we have to understand this. The gospel is offensive and if we think that, that we need to make it more palatable so those people won't grind their teeth at it, we're doing something wrong. Now, I'm not saying we need to make it just go and slap people upside the face with the doctrines of grace or something like that. No, what I'm saying is we don't need to compromise the gospel because it is offensive. In fact, they killed Christ for it, and they're about to kill Stephen. What we see, they kill Stephen for that. It's offensive, and it's supposed to be. This is what we see here. It, they're full of rage. They'd heard this, this is at least the third time. And their anger escalated, and they continued to harden their hearts to the truth. And this is a worldly, selfish response. This is like a little kid that doesn't get his way in the grocery store, and he falls on the floor and throws a tantrum. Anybody ever experienced that before? Yeah. This is the adult version of that. Stopping their ears. Oh, I don't want to hear it. Imagine what this looked like. And gritting their teeth and gnashing their teeth. This is foolish. These men were confronted with the truth of their sin. And it greatly offended them because they were unwilling to admit, admit the truth. And their response was rage. And it didn't do anybody any good. Just like a, a child throwing a fit on the floor does no good. In fact, those that continue in their rejection of the gospel will forever gnash their teeth. And I tell you this because I love you. And I know your pastor loves you and your staff here loves you. Your pastors here love you and they tell you this too. Without Christ, you will forever weep and gnash your teeth in all eternity. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42. says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his, out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you want to know what keeps your pastors up at night? Knowing that people will spend all eternity weeping and gnashing their teeth. Because they rebelled against the one true king. 
This is not something that we are to take lightly, church. And how we respond and how we take a stand has monumental effect. We're to do as Stephen is. This is how Stephen, Stephen, however, was in, he was just the opposite of these religious leaders. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Very, in very sharp contrast, Stephen remained calm. He didn't get angry. He didn't throw rocks back. He didn't, didn't curse back at them. He was totally yielded to the Holy Spirit's control. But this is how Stephen rolled, isn't it? This is a way of life for him. He trusted in the Spirit's leading him. He had a confidence in something greater than himself. It's the, the seal or promise of salvation when God saves us. Do you know this, Christian? How often do you think about the indwelling Holy Spirit within you? That God's Word says that when we, we, we put our faith in Christ, that the third person of the Trinity, God himself takes up residence in you? How often do you think of that? And are you yielding to that? Paul says this in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise God for the indwelling Holy Spirit of believers. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of godly living in believers on a daily basis. On a daily basis, it convicts us of sin. It's an intercessor for us. It's a guide. It's a helper. It's what Scripture tells us. It's what the Holy Spirit does. But look at what he did here for Stephen. He provides, oftentimes he does this for believers. He provides special grace in times of crisis. You think about the Holy Spirit working in your life. You ever been in just a time of crisis and God just worked? provided for you, comforted you, you're in a place of pain and hurt and discomfort or distress and the Holy Spirit just holds you. This is what he does. We're to trust in that. Stephen embraced the life of the Spirit in him. He trusted it and followed the leading of the Spirit and it allowed him to do just the opposite of these religious leaders. To not argue or throw stones back, but to love them. And what we see here is these religious leaders, they were full of hate because they were given into their flesh. Yet Stephen, Stephen was full of compassion for them because he was filled and given in to the Holy Spirit. In the Christian, we have to be careful because the Spirit can be quenched Resisted, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Praise God, Stephen didn't do that. Here's the next contrast I want us to see the truth here. The religious leaders, they were willing to destroy, to destroy life to save their own way of life. Yet Stephen, Stephen was willing to give his life for the sake of others. What a contrast, right? When the religious leaders, when they'd had they had enough and wanted to hear no more. They gave in to their selfish rage. They committed to destroy Stephen. Let's get rid of him. He's saying things that hurt our feelings and may take away our way of life. Let's get rid of him. Let's just kill him. And we can do it in a very self-righteous way. Let's destroy him. They drug him out of the city. And this is what happened. They, they pushed him off a short cliff so they could get some more height above him. And they hurled stones at him. They hurled stones at his head to crush him, to kill him. Because they didn't like what he was saying. Not what he was doing. He didn't assault them physically or anything. All he's doing is telling them the truth. They drug him outside the city, pushed him off a cliff, and then began began taking rocks and hurling them to crush him. What a way to go, right? All because they didn't like what he had to say. They were willing to destroy his life to save their own way of life. 
Stephen called them stiff-necked and rightly so. He accused them of denying the truth because the gospel was assault against their way of life and their self-righteousness. That's what the gospel does. It confronts our self-righteousness. It tells us, no, you're not good enough. Romans 3, no one is good. No one seeks after God. None do. That's why Christ came, because he knows you don't seek after him. He came for you. This is what he does, church. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that I'm not good. But the most loving thing that you can tell someone that is not a believer is tell them that you're not good. You're not. You you don't measure up. That's why you need a Savior that does. This is what we need, church. The gospel is it. This is what Stephen was doing. They didn't like it. They dragged him out of the city and they hurled stones at his head. Because it was assault against their way of life and their self-righteousness. They loved their lifestyle because it was centered around them. (laughs) Look at how holy I am. I go to church every Sunday. I pay a tithe. Look at how great I am. Even wear a suit sometimes on Easter and Christmas. Pray all this time. I don't look at how holy I am. This is not it. Stephen's saying, look at Christ, look at Christ, look at Christ. And they were willing to protect this self-righteous way of life at all costs. We even see it in how they carried out the stoning of Stephen. Kind of did a little study of this. And what we see here, this is... Actually, it, it was an act, the stoning of Stephen was an act of mob violence. But what we see here too is, is their, their self-righteousness in the way that these leaders carried it out. Mob violence, but we're going to make it look like we're being holy and righteous and we're following God's word to do this. We're going to make it look good. We're going to justify our means and twist scripture and all of these things. We see here that they drug him out of the city first. Here's the thing. They didn't have the authority to stone Stephen. They didn't have the authority to do so. They needed permission from the government to do so. They didn't get it. But they go, well, we'll do it the religious way. They drag him out of the city first. Let's drag him out of the city. This is where this comes from. The Leviticus twenty four fourteen. Bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Well, let's drag him outside the city. Let's make it look like we're doing the right thing. Before they stoned him, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of Saul. We see in Deuteronomy 17, 7 commanded that the witnesses that brought a charge against the one be the first to throw the stones, and perhaps these false witnesses were the first ones to hurl stones at Stephen. These religious leaders, they were willing to take, their li- take the life of a man that they could not deny was telling the truth just to protect their own way of life, and they tried to make it look legit. That's what they did. Throwing a tantrum stomping their feet, gnashing their teeth, and putting their fingers in their ears, ears was not enough. Not enough. They had to drag him outside the city and stone him, and they tried to make it look legit. But Stephen, we see here, Stephen willingly gave up his life for the sake of others. The gospel compelled him to do this Stephen didn't run away. He didn't curse back at his accusers. He didn't throw stones back. Look at what he did. Look at what he did. He fell to his knees and pleaded with God. He called Jesus to receive his spirit. Oh God, receive my spirit. He prayed that God would not hold his sin against him and he fell asleep. He willingly gave his life over for the sake of others. Who does that? Honestly, I mean, when I read this and I'm thinking, who does that? Why would anyone do that? Why didn't he run away? Why didn't he go, whoa, 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 guys, let's talk about this. Why didn't he say, well, hang on, guys, let's let's, let's talk. Or maybe go, hey, uh, maybe I didn't mean all of that. 
How about we talk about this tomorrow? Why didn't he run away? He trusted and he stood firm on the gospel. He stood firm on the gospel. He goes, this is truth. It's truth. Stephen was willing to give up his life for the sake of us. The gospel compelled him to do this. The gospel didn't do, compelled him to do this. He followed his savior Jesus and even his final words were similar. Father, don't hold this against them. Don't hold it against them. They know not what they do. To Stephen, his physical life was worth it to stand firm in the gospel. It was worth it and God would use his given life The garments were laid at the feet of religious scholar and persecutor of the church, this Saul. No doubt God used the life and death of Stephen, this account, to convict Saul of his sin and draw Saul, who we know as Paul, to faith in Christ. Paul gives evidence of this when he writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Does anybody know who Jim Elliott is, the missionary? I love the life of Jim Elliott. He's a Stephen kind of a modern day Stephen. In, in the 1950s, Jim Elliott and some friends and, and, and I believe his wife was with him. He went to Ecuador because he knew that, that there, were, there were people down there. There was a, a group of Indians, or these uh, people that lived in the jungle there had never heard the name of Jesus. And Jim Elliott was so compelled, the Holy Spirit compelled him so much that he needed to go there and find a way to share the gospel with him so they could have an opportunity to have faith in Jesus. And this was a long process. He, he went through and learned the language, and, 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 and this was a very hostile tribe. They had actually killed people before that tried to contact them. Very secluded tribe, and, and they went through uh, extensive efforts just to contact these people and, and maybe establish a relationship with them. They flew over on a plane and was uh, saying things in their, their language to, to, to hopefully uh, begin to build a bond of peace for them. And they would, they would throw things out the airplane of gifts to the folks and all that stuff. And, and there was one day they thought, well, now's the time. We're going to go and land on this stretch of river very close to where we know these people are living. We're going to camp there and hopefully we can have an encounter. And on the first day, they do have a, a, a very small encounter with some women that were there at the river. And the next day, Jim Elliott was very ex- excited because he was hoping maybe this is the day that we can have this encounter with these people. Maybe we can establish a relationship and we can share the gospel with him. And on that day, it wasn't women, there were other men that came. And Jim Elliott's excited and hopefully very nervous, but, but again, these are very dangerous people. And on that day, Jim Elliott and the men that were with him were speared to death on that beach. Every one of them were armed men. Jim Elliott and his men that were with him, they had guns with them. But yet they fell to spears, hand-thrown spears thrown by these, this tribe of Indians that were there that came out of the jungle. And the reason why they didn't fire back was because they knew Jesus. And if they were to take the life of these men that didn't, they knew that they would spend eternity in hell. But Jim and the men that were with him knew that they knew Jesus. And it was worth it to give their life over so that maybe, maybe, these folks come to faith. 
It's an interesting story. As you could, I encourage you to read the story of Jim Elliot and, and how God worked because the very man, and in fact, that later on, Jim Elliot's wife and his son and some, some other folks, they, they came and shared the gospel. They were able to establish contact and, and actually shared the gospel with this, this tribe of Indians. And the very man that threw the spear that killed Jim Elliot came to faith in Jesus. In a famous quote that Jim Elliot lived out, One of his famous quotes is this. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Oh, church, do we do that? This is what we see in Stephen. We're willing to give our lives over for the sake of others. Here's the next thing that we see, this contrast. The unbelieving religious leaders received God's wrath But yet Stephen was blessed by God. These religious leaders, they denied the truth of the gospel. And a denial of that truth leads leads to the eternal wrath of God. And I say this because I love you. You need to know this. That your rebellion against the truth of the gospel leads to God's wrath. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you know what Romans 8.1 does mean? On the opposite side, those who are not in Christ Jesus are still under God's condemnation. We see this in John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the, in the name of the Holy Son of God. Many of these religious leaders, they died in their self-righteous denial of the truth of the gospel. We know that God saves all, and I don't know what he did with the others. We don't know. But we, we could probably say for certain that many of them died in their unbelief. And they're continually weeping and gnashing their teeth. And they will do that for all eternity. Away from the glory and gracious favor of God. But yet under God's continual, unrelenting, unhindered wrath. These unbelievers were cast in the outer darkness. They're cast there where the fire is not quenched and the worm is never full and the weeping and gnashing of teeth never cease. This is their reward for their denial of the truth. And here's the thing. If you are sitting here this morning in denial of that truth, that is what you look forward to in all eternity. And that is the things that keep... Keep guys like myself and your Pastor Paul up at night praying for those that don't believe. That God would just show them and rescue them and makes us the way we preach the gospel so boldly. And we want to challenge our people to preach the gospel and share the gospel boldly because an eternity is in the balance. We all have an eternity that we'll step over into church. And it is either in the unrelenting glory in favor of God or the unrelenting wrath of God. But look at Stephen. This is the beauty here. This is what I love about this. God's favor. Not for Stephen. The text says that he gazed into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now you read in scripture when, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But it's interesting that Luke tells us here in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7 and 8, he says that, that Stephen received a standing ovation. Jesus gets up and he's standing. He's standing and he sees Stephen. Stephen standing firmly on the gospel. And he's like... Just what I needed you to do. It's a beautiful, it's a standing ovation from the King of Kings. What better praise could a believer get? Making much of Jesus. This is what he does. He gives his life over, making much of Jesus, not himself. Making much of Jesus. Standing ovation from the king of kings. He was one of the few to, to get a glimpse into heaven. Like Isaiah and Ezekiel and John and later Paul would get a glimpse into the glory of heaven. 
And the text says that Stephen fell asleep. I like this. Peacefully and calmly, he slipped into the presence of the Lord. I cannot help but think that the words of Jesus were repeated from Matthew 25 as Stephen slipped into the presence of the Lord. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you long to hear that, Christian? Live for the glory of God. Stand firmly on the gospel, which is about Christ. Do that. Do that. I love the sleep, too. Sleep is a great way to describe the death of a believer. It is eternal rest in the presence of the unhindered glory of God for all eternity. Peaceful. This is what it does. It takes a believer from the woes of this world, the weariness of a broken world, the sin of a corrupt world, and, and its effects of sin, and, and, and work, and all of these things. And what it is is eternal rest in the goodness of God. This is what believers, Christians, if your faith is in Christ, this is your hope, this is your inheritance. In Christ, the goodness of God. A believer should never Never fear giving his life over for the benefit of God's kingdom, but consider it an honor. An honor. Christian, how are you giving your life over today for God's kingdom? And how will you give your life over tomorrow for God's kingdom? And how will you give your life over the next day for God's kingdom? There's joy in this. Stephen, we see this in Stephen. Great joy. We see in the life of Stephen, as a great example of what it means to be transformed in life and death by the gospel. Who does that? Only someone that knows the King of kings and Lord of lords and stands firmly on the truth. Here's the last contrast here. I want us to see the world's desires to suppress the truth of the gospel in all aspects. It wants to silence the gospel, but God grows his kingdom through hardships. What we see here is is a a, a great persecution of the church arose that day and believers were scattered. Now, here's the thing. It would seem as though the enemy had won, right? Oh, my goodness. Great persecution has risen. Christians are scattered, it seemed as though Satan was winning. I've, I've scattered them all. And God goes, exactly what I wanted. That's how I work. It's called the dispersion or dispora. I want to spread them out so these believers that stand firmly on the gospel, they can spread out and teach others to stand firmly on the gospel. This is what, what it happens here. This is what we see here. This is how God works. It's God's plan to grow his kingdom through hardships. You think about, think about how you have grown through hardships. You think about when, when life happens. If you're a believer, what do you do? what's your default? Do you hit your knees and pray, God, God, I just want more of you because if I don't have any more of you, then I, I don't want to give in to this. I want to trust in you. You're my hope. You think about this. This is the way God works. It's contrary to the world. The world will say, no, 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 no. Hardships are bad. Enjoy this. Follow your heart. Let me tell you something. The Bible says don't follow your heart. It's evil. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Follow Christ. This is the thing. The world hates the gospel. Jesus talks about this. The world hates the gospel. They hate Jesus. And, and Jesus uses the word hate. He doesn't say, ah, they kind of don't like it. The world hates the gospel. Because it is offensive. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. The world does everything it can to destroy the truth because the world is man-centered. That's why the world hates the gospel. The world is all about me. The God of self. The God of self cannot save you. The God of self will send you straight to hell. Only the God of peace, Christ Jesus, can save. The gospel is God-centered 
And God does not lose. He wins. He wins, church. He wins. So what do we do with this? If I go, hey, Josh, that sounds really good. All that stuff sounds really good. What do I do with that? Glad you asked. Let's talk about that for a moment. Because the gospel is transformative. When we trust in Christ, when we see our sin and our sin that separates us from the glory of God, that we have offended a God that has all authority because he is the creator. He's not the created. He is the creator. He spoke everything into being. And we're subject to that authority. Whether we like it or not, we're subject to that authority. And what we do is we rebel against that. And God says, because you rebel against that, death is deserved. Death is deserved. And what God made, because he has all authority, he gets to make the rules, right? But these are good. But he says, but because I love you, I will pay for your death. Christ comes, lives the life that we never could, dies the death that we deserve, goes to the grave that we should be in, and he overcomes it. He's not there. He overcomes the death that we deserve. And what does he say? Just believe in me, trust in me. You ever get yourself cleaned up before that? Trust in me. Put your hope in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Know that you're not good enough, but look to the one that is. Repent of your sin. Turn from those things. It means turn to Jesus. Follow Jesus. This is what it means to believe in Christ. This is what it means to trust in him, to hope in him, and make your life centered around him and not yourself. There's joy in that. There's so much greater joy. It transforms us. When we put our hope in the gospel, it transforms us. The gospel calls for us to stand for the truth of the gospel, but do so in a way that is contrary to the world. We don't do it the way that the world does. We do it the way Jesus does. So what does that look like? You're probably saying, I hear you, Josh. What does that mean? How do I stand and stand firm on the gospel? Not the way the world would want us to, but, but the way that God says. Well, here's, here's a few pointers or some tips to do that. The gospel calls us to trust in the Holy Spirit, not quench it or suppress it. When was the last time you said, God, I need you to lead me. I need your Holy Spirit. I, need, I, want, to, I want to succumb to the Holy Spirit. I want to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. When is the last time you prayed, Spirit, I need you to lead me? So often I think we put the Holy Spirit over here in something we don't really want to talk about. That's for those Bapticostals, right? It's, it's in the Bible. It's the third person of the Trinity. It's what's in, in us, and, and, and we need to trust in it. So often, here's what we do. We give in to rage when we, need, when we meet opposition rather than giving in to the Holy Spirit. We give in to our own selfish desires. I don't like what you said. Therefore, I'm going to rebel against you in the way that you came at me. It's not what the Bible says. Let me tell you what Paul says. This guy that rebelled against God, that held the garments of those that stoned Stephen, listen to what he says after God radically changed his life. Ephesians 4, verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's contrary to the world. How often do you seek the leading of the Spirit in your life? Do you pray about things or are you quick to respond in rage? When's the last time you prayed for that guy that cut you off in traffic? you wonder if he knew Jesus or did you curse under your breath do you long for the good direction and discipline of God do you ever think about that here's the next application four the gospel calls us to give our lives over for the sake of others Your life is not your own. Christ bought it, Christian. It was really never your own to begin with. But he bought it. It is hid. It is hidden with him. How well are you giving that life over for the sake of others? Can I get personal for just a moment? 
Husbands, how are you giving your life over for the sake of your wife? Leading her and washing her with the word. Wives, how are you loving your husbands and giving your life over for the sake of the gospel in your husband's life? How are you as parents doing that together? Giving your life over for the sake of your children Families, how, how are you giving your lives over for the sake of your neighbors that are lost, that condemnation still remains upon them? How are you doing that? You, you, maybe you, today at lunch or this evening at dinner, you sit at the dinner table and go, hey, Josh asked this crazy question. How are we giving our lives over as a family for the sake of our neighbors? What that means is how can we stand firm on the gospel for the sake of our neighbors? How are we loving them and caring for them? How are you you giving your life over for the sake of your enemies? Here's the third one. The gospel calls us to seek the blessings of God and not settle for the junk of the world. And I use that word junk intentionally because this world is full of junk (laughs) and it'll tell us, hey, you need this, you need this, this is a blessing for you, you need this. (laughs) What areas of your life are you settling for less than what God desires for you? How often do you pray about that? God, I want to see what you have for me. I can imagine some pretty amazing things, but... No eyes seen, no ears heard, right? Do we really want what God has for us? Amazing, beautiful, incredible things. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He talked about this, and I'll paraphrase what he said. He goes, so often we settle for making mud pies in our backyard when there's a holiday at the sea awaiting us. We have no idea it's there. Make mud pies in the backyard. And we could have a holiday at the sea. When's the last time you go, God, show me a holiday at the sea and help me see these mud pies for what they are? Don't let me dream of mud pies, but seek your direction. Where can you take me to stand firm on the gospel to see your glory? Here's the last one. The gospel calls for us to stand firm by humbly loving others, even in the face of opposition. Humbly loving others, even in the face of opposition. This is a hard one, isn't it? When we hear somebody that's, that's against the truth that we share. You know what I found? We were talking about the break. And I was talking to one of the guys here earlier. I said, here's, here's what I, I've noticed that Christians that we have an issue with. We expect unbelievers to act like believers. They're not supposed to. (laughs) And they don't. Why do we get upset when they don't? You know what we are to do? We're to love them. How do you respond when, when, when someone disagrees with you? Say, I use this example in the the first service. Think about this. I'm against abortion. Absolutely. But here's what I see. So, so often Christians take such a hard, unloving stance. Unloving stance against it. And, and here's the thing I think about. Yes, God loves those babies in the womb. But you know who else he loves? He loves those parents that have sinned in that way. And here's, here's where my heart just hurts. It hurts. Because I have people in my church that I know that have, have done that atrocious, and it is atrocious thing. But they sit in my church, and they don't need me to point my finger at them and go, look at what you've done. You know what they need? They need to know that Jesus loves them, and he died for that sin as well. That's what they need. They need me to come along beside them and go, I know it's hard, and I know it hurts because they live with it every day. They don't need me to tell them what they did was wrong. They know it. They need to know that Christ loves them. They need to know the power of the gospel, even forgiving of that. 
What about those that, that live an alternative lifestyle that is contrary to God's word? Oh, I can't mess with those people. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as such were some of you, but you were washed. You were made clean. I'm not saying that we agree with that. You know what we do? We stand firm on the gospel. But we put our arm around them and we go, I hate what you were doing because it steals, kills, and destroys. And I don't want to see that for you. I love you enough to spend time with you, have a relationship with you, care for you, and share the absolute truth with you. That in praying that God would change your heart. So often these things like abortion and homosexuality and all those other things, infidelity, all those other things, you know what they are? They're symptoms of a bigger issue. Symptoms of an unchanged heart. Do you know what changes that? The gospel does. And it is Christians, Romans 10 Christians, standing firm on the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel. You want to change that? Preach the gospel. Here's, here's one last one. I kind of got some remarks about this one too. What about those that disagree with you politically? Man, I see nothing but hate. Hate back and forth. Let me tell you something. Your politics will never save you. Ever. Why do you act like it does? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I'm going to leave you with this. The gospel calls for us to stand firm, a humbling, humbly loving others, even in the face of opposition. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have, have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be, to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I think one of the greatest enemies of the church today is that Christians are content being noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. And they don't have compassion and love for a lost world that is going to hell. Oh, may we stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel. Because here's the thing. Our, our goal, I tell our people all the time, our goal is not to win arguments we're to win people. Arguments don't win people. <laughs> they never do. But we don't compromise the truth. We stand firm on the gospel. So how are you standing firm on the gospel? How are we giving our lives over for the sake of others? Ours is secure. Our eternity is secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. How are we seeking God's direction in our lives? And His glory and not the junk of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for being able to worship with my brothers and sisters here at Bentry. I thank you for this church, Father. And I pray that you continue to pour your blessings on it. God, I pray that you would make these believers fearless. I mean absolutely fearless. In a world that wants to destroy everything that you are. God, I pray that you would clothe them in compassion and humility and love. But God, make them fearless with the truth of the gospel. Hold them, Father. Hold them upright. Strengthen them. And Father, for those that are here this morning, maybe that they don't know the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that you would redeem them and rescue them now. I pray that they would see their sin has separated them from you. And that only hope and trust in Christ can save. And God, I pray that you do that today. This very moment that they run to you and you plant their feet firmly on the foundation of the gospel. 
And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.